0: All right, in the book of Mark, (laughs) uh, chapter 8, you say, well, that's going backwards. Well, for just a minute we are, (laughs) about an hour and a half. Uh, But just uh, in the book of uh, Mark, chapter 8, we see that Jesus revealed his identity in verse 27 to 33, his identity and his mission. And Jesus Christ, of course, is the key person of Mark's gospel. Actually, it should be the key person in all the Word of God, and it is. But especially in the gospel of Mark in chapter 1, verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. And of course, We find that that was John the Baptist. Uh, uh, He was speaking of John the Baptist, but he was talking about Jesus Christ and the beginning of the gospel. And the gospel is about the Son of God, of course. Now, what Jesus said and taught was of great importance, and what Jesus did equally was of great importance. But who Jesus is, is of supreme importance, at this point, he had, he had been approved from heaven as the Son of God and had been recognized by the devils as the Holy One, you remember. And then in chapter, in chapter 8, verse 27 to 33, he presents for us four searching questions, if you would. First of all, who was Jesus according to the people's opinion? It's amazing about people's opinions sometimes. But some heard uh, heard uh, his preaching and his teaching and concluded that as Herod did, that he was John the Baptist risen from the dead. Others witnessed his miracles and were sure that he was Elijah while still, still others thought that he was could have been Jeremiah the prophet because of his compassion. Then many... People today think that he was a great teacher. Uh, He was a carpenter of Nazareth, maybe they would say. He was a founder of Christianity. He was a Jew who claimed to be the Messiah. Uh, He was a martyr who died for a noble cause. Now, while all of these claims are laudable for sure, but all of them are flawed, the important thing is, is not what others think or what others say, but what the scriptures say. So the question is, the question that we first asked was who is Jesus Christ according to personal, uh, according to uh, people's opinion? But then the question of who was Jesus according to Peter's confession? Peter uh, has often been blamed for saying the wrong thing, and of course we see many times he has. However, when he spoke the, uh, with courage and conviction, he, was, he openly confessed, "Thou art the Christ." the Son of the living God. Then another question is, who is Jesus according to his personal admission? When the disciples understood and acknowledged that he was Christ, the the Savior then spoke about the cross and the purpose of his coming. Remember, he said that the Son of Man must suffer many things. This was the obedience of Christ to the Father's will, of course. But then he said they must be rejected. Uh, This is the opposition we would see to Jesus Christ. It was predicted in Isaiah. But then Jesus Christ was, he said he must be killed. And this is the offering of Christ on the cross. And he spoke of a violent death at the hands of wicked men. Uh, Yet there was a voluntary nature to his death as well. He said, no man taketh my life, I lay it down. And he said, after these things, he said, rise again. After three days, he will rise again. Jesus overcame death by the resurrection. And three times uh, the Lord revealed to us and to his disciples, details of the coming passion, his dying. Uh, and on each occasion, they failed to understand that he must suffer. They, you see, they wanted him to set up his kingdom. Then the fourth question that was, was proffered in those verses is, uh, who is Jesus Christ according to your personal confession?" Although Peter is one who responded, each of the disciples were asked the same question, who do you say that I am? Each must uh, have it give his own answer, just as we should. We must give our own answer. It boils down to the basics and the essence and the value of the future of your life depends on the answer, whom do you say that I am? Now, so we saw that Jesus revealed to us his destiny, his mission. But then, in verse thirty-eight of chapter four, uh, chapter a uh, verse thirty-four of chapter eight, down to verse thirty-eight, you remember, Jesus required devotion from his disciples. Our Savior spelled out the terms and the demands of discipleship. The disciple is not greater than his Lord. In the principles of discipleship, as laid down by Christ, Jesus Christ, there is a portrait of the Savior himself. As we are his disciples, we would be basically a portrait of Christ. The first thing is a disciple is one who forsakes and forgets his own will. And then a disciple is one who fulfills the Father's will. It was Dr. Wilbur Chapman, the famed evangelist that asked General William Booth the secret of his evangelistic success. General Booth replied, I will tell you the secret. God has had all there is of me to have. All the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. And that's that's precisely what God looks for in a disciple. Then we we saw that a disciple is one who follows Christ wherever he leads. Now we get down to chapter 9. We've looked at some of this before, but I'm going to go over it. Uh, quick very quickly try to very quickly coming to chapter 9 we have the display of our lord's glory on the mount that foreshadows his return in majesty in power and great glory to reign now peter later recorded this event uh, and how that he and james and john were eyewitnesses to the majesty to Christ's majesty when he received from God the Father honor and glory. Now, this has to do with the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter tells of that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 18. The vision was not one of his glorious resurrection or his enthronement in heaven, but the power and coming of his earthly kingdom this is what's pictured at, transgra- at the Mount of Transfiguration. A subject really that's quite captivating when you think about it. And notice in our scripture in chapter 2, well, in chapter 9 in verse 2, he said the expression after six days in, in verse 2 refers to the time lapse from the first his first announcement of his death and his resurrection in chapter 8 verse 31. But there are three that we see as we read through this. There are three chosen disciples. Peter and James and John were taken by him into the high mountain apart from the others. Now there are three special occasions in the gospels which our perfect, the perfect servant Christ took the same three Apart to teach them the important lessons and also to show them his person. In chapter 5, in verse 37, he took them apart to show himself as the Savior. In chapter 14, in verse 33, we will see later that he took them apart to show that he's a sufferer. In our Chapter 9, in verse 2, he took them apart to the mountain of transfiguration to show that he's the sovereign. Now, he, we remember, we had seen before, that he was transfigured before them for their special benefit. They beheld his glory. It was to be the source of inspiration for them. As we look at their lives, we would see that James was a martyr, ended up as a martyr. They all, most of them did, except John, of course. But James was a martyr. He was the first of the three to die, according to Acts chapter 12 and verse 2. Then John was the minister. He was to write as no other of the glory of the Son of God and the glorious kingdom of Christ. And then Peter was a messenger he also beheld the glory of the servant, our Lord Jesus, on the mount. And, and he listened to Moses and Elias speak of his death. And he was therefore especially equipped to preach the gospel with Jesus only as the theme. By the way, all preaching should have Jesus as theme. Peter, that great soul winner, was inspired to point men to the glorified Christ. Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, the word of God says, And God hath made this same Jesus, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. So Peter was always pointing to Christ. Now the three great, on the Mount of Transfiguration, there were three, of course, great deliverers, we remember. There was Elijah who delivered Israel from the false worship of Baal. And then there was, there was uh, 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 Elijah, Christ who delivered from sin. And then, of course, there was Moses that was able to deliver, to deliver the children of Israel to the promised land. Elijah was raptured and Moses was buried secretly, and there were, and, and were in appearance, are the representatives of the law and the prophets. Moses represented the law, Elijah represented the prophets. Peter was very overwhelmed, if you remember, by the scene, and he opened his mouth and proposed, uh, he said that. It's good that we be here, and why don't we just build three tabernacles? Why don't we build three booths, or three tabernacles, the booths it was, I guess. Uh, and the, the idea of making three booths arose from feeling in his heart that the kingdom had arrived, and therefore the Feast of Tabernacles should be celebrated, according to Leviticus chapter. Twenty-three, And then Zechariah chapter 14, of course. Now, the cloud that overshadowed them was in all likelihood that Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah of God's presence, according to Exodus 40 and verse 35. Jesus appeared, revealing himself in visible form, and it was always by some kind of light, a cloud, a light in a cloud, a fire, the Shekinah glory, if you would. And the appearances of God were, as I said, of light, a phenomena. And the intention of this priestly service is that God appears in light. By the way, the world and the mystics have taken that and gone awry with it. And they talk about coming to the light and sort of things like that, of course. And that's not, according to Scripture, at all. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 7 to 10, God appears to Israel as light. In Exodus 24, God appears to Moses as light. In Exodus 40, in verse 34 and 35, the tabernacle was completed, and God appears in the Shekinah glory as light. The voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased here on, on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Father's voice heard at the it was heard at the commencement of his ministry, giving the witness to the sonship. And it's heard in the eve of, his, of the conclusion of his ministry that gives testament to his glory as well as as being the son. His sonship places him above all others. God said, hear him or hear ye him. In other words, he's saying, listen only to him. This is a reminder that Jesus is the prophet that's greater than Moses. And as they were descending from, and we're coming down to the passage we're going to read in just a moment, but as they were descending down from the mountain, Jesus charged them that they would tell no man what they had seen until they, he had risen from the dead. The full meaning of the happening would only be evident to them after his resurrection, for then Jesus, then his sonship would be fully Exposed, be fully attested to. The disciples, we remember, were unable to understand rising from the dead. They just couldn't grasp that. And we, we looked at several times, in especially chapter 8 and chapter the first part of chapter 9, where it was mentioned of his rising from the dead. They couldn't grasp that. They wanted him to set up his kingdom. And that's exactly what, what they wanted, what Peter wanted to do there on the Mount of Transfiguration. They certainly believed in the resurrection of the dead, but one rising from the dead, from among the dead, was beyond their comprehension. You see, one rising from the dead, one rising from- they believed in the resurrection, of course. But it was questioning one, one another as they walked down the mountain. They were questioning that, of course. And following the scene which they had witnessed came the idea that the kingdom was about to be established. So they asked the question, why did the scribes say that Elijah must first come? Well, Elijah was expected to precede the coming of the Messiah. Jesus confirmed that Elijah was, must first come and restore all things, according to Malachi chapter 4. They were right about Elijah, but they were wrong concerning the Son of Man since they did not include the necessity of the rejection and suffering. You see, they had not looked at Isaiah 53. in verse. Did you know that today the rabbis will not allow Isaiah 53 to be read in the synagogue? is my understanding, in witnessing to a Jewish man not too long ago and talking to him, and he gave testimony that he had received Jesus as his Messiah. He said, I was lied to all of these years. I was never allowed to read or know anything about Isaiah 53 and any time they would take that, they would always point it and say, it was the nation of Israel. You can't read Isaiah 53 and apply it to the nation of Israel. And notice he says, he said here, but I say unto you in these verses. Now, the Lord identified John the Baptist as one who fulfilled the ministry of Elijah. And as John fulfill that prophecy, the prophecy of Elijah coming in type at the first advent of Christ. So another witness, also Elijah-like, will appear to finally fulfill the prophecy of Malachi before the second advent of our Lord. Now, we have to remember there's a difference between the rapture and the return. You have to understand that. But then I want us to see briefly here again The glory of Christ on the mountain that we looked at on the last time in the first 13 verses of chapter 9. The glory of Christ on the mountain. The Mount of Transfiguration was a a great contrast to Calvary, if you would. Mount Hermon was was a mount of glory. Calvary was a place of grief. Here was the outshining of his light, but at Calvary was the outpouring of his life. Here his clothing did not hide his glory. At at Calvary, his clothing did not cover his shame. Here Jesus stood between two worthies of history, Moses and Elijah. Elijah. At Calvary, he was sacrificed between two thieves of infamy. His brightness outshone the sun on the Mount of Transfiguration. At Calvary, darkness hid the sun. Here was heard on Mount Transfiguration the Father's voice of approval from heaven. At Calvary was heard the sun's cry of abandonment from the earth. Transfiguration happens on a mountain. This happens in the valley below. The transfiguration, in the transfiguration, there is glory. Here is suffering. In the transfiguration, God dominates the scene. But here, Satan dominates the scene. In the transfiguration, the father is pleased. In this incident here, the earthly father is tortured. In the transfiguration, there's a perfect son. But here, there's a possessed son. In the transfiguration... You have fallen men in holy wonder. In this story, you have a fallen son in unholy horror, what we're about to read. I want to, I want to take you to those verses, verse 14 of chapter 9. And when, they, and when he had come to his disciples... He saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning them and straightway all the people when they beheld him were greatly amazed and running to him saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son which hath a dumb spirit and wheres, and, wheresoever, and wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. Now this is a picture of uh, him being tormented. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him and foameth and gnasheth, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away, and I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. We're going to see that later. And answered him, he answered him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you, and how long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Now, let me just stop here just a moment. If we take in Matthew chapter 17 in this account, and then in the in the, the account, the same account in Luke, we understand that he he said, bring him to me. He's saying to the father, bring him to me. Okay, verse 20 says, and they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him and, fell on the gro- and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came upon him? And he said, of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people were running running together, he rebuked the foul spirit that came running together. He rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore, And came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many had said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, this kind come, can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. I want to draw your attention to verse 23 especially and speak to you about the unlimited possibilities. Verse 23 says, And Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe all things are possible, To him that believeth. Now, in our text here tonight, after seeing a display of the Sovereign on the Mount of Transfiguration, we come here to a beautiful and a unique display of the Servant of God, Jesus Christ. We see a display of His grace. This is one of the most dramatic scenes in all the New Testament. It involves a possessed boy filled with an an unclean spirit. And the scene moves from the mountain into the valley, from triumph to tragedy, from delight to despair. If you could just imagine the delight that's on the hearts of those that had just been with God on the transfiguration. Now they're in the valley of despair. This miracle shows the inability, and you got to, if you miss this, you're going to miss this whole thing. This miracle shows the inability of the servants in the absence of Christ. I submit to you that these nine that were left there are the ones that could not cast the devil out. Remember, Jesus had told them he's going to be suffering, he's going to be leaving. And so how are they going to act? What's going to happen when Christ is outside of their physical presence? Power could only be obtained by prayer and faith in God alone. I want us to go back and look at these verses and point out several things to you. First of all, I want, to, want us to see in the verse 14 and 15, the argument of the scribes. The argument of the scribes. It says, and when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude with, about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. The argument of the scribes, reaching the nine at the foot of the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus and his three disciples found this great multitude gathering together. And a great dispute was in progress between the scribes and these nine that are left there. No doubt they are challenging these nine. You see, Jesus is not there, so they want to challenge them uh, about theological issues. Remember, these are Jews, and, and naturally they would want to challenge them regarding uh, what they believe now. So this great dispute was in progress here, and as, as soon as Jesus came near the people, they ran to greet him. And the Lord asks them the meaning of what's the meaning of this argument. Why are you asking all of this? You see, I'm sure they wanted, they, they wanted to debate the dying rather than debate the Lord. So we see the argument of these scribes. And then I want you to notice in verse 16, verse 17 and 18, the anguish of the father. Notice it says... And he asked the scribes, what question ye with him? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. The anguish of the Father. Now, the Father in the crowd has explained the whole situation. In Matthew chapter 17, in verse 14, 15, and 16, notice what the Word of God says. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord... Have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. For often he falleth, falleth into the fire and off into the water, and I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him. You see, they have mercy on my son. He said, for he is a lunatic. He is struck by the sun by the moon lunar, lunar struck. Which would be, of course, of the night, would it not? But he noticed the father kneeling down and saying, Lord. So somewhere this man out of the multitude had had some connection somehow with the Lord. He approached him properly. He knelt before him and he cried, Lord. Lord. He had a son that's possessed of a dumb spirit. And this, was, this devil often caused him to have a violent, violent seizures and, and had made numerous attempts really to destroy his life. And in his great need, he had brought his son to Jesus. But in Jesus' absence, physical absence, he had spoken to his disciples to Exercise this devil out, but they could not. So there's the anguish of the Father. But then notice in verse 19 the asking of the questions, what Jesus said. And he answered him and said, O oh, faithless generation, How long shall I be with you? And how long shall I suffer you? Bring him to me. Our Lord had used these sad, searching questions, revealing his distress at the lack of their faith, the disciples' faith. Then he said, bring the boy to me. But then we have something happen here. in Verse 20, notice this, the audacity of the devil. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. The very presence of Jesus aroused the devil to take control of this boy once more and uh, more fully and throwing him down on the ground in violent spasms. And he caused him to have violent spasms. The boy lay on the ground wallowing and foaming at the mouth. Surely a sad sight of one in a helpless and hopeless state. Can you imagine the audacity of the one whom God has the power and he will one day cast him into the lake of fire to make one another effort to dethrone God? The audacity of the devil. Folks, the devil will do anything and everything to destroy your life. If you can't get your life, he'll try to destroy your testimony. He'll destroy everything you have. He it does not care. But then I want us to see verse 23, 21 to 23, the answer of our Lord. And he asked the father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said of a child and oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him but if thou canst do anything have compassion on us and help us and isn't it amazing he did say if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us. And Jesus said to him, If thou canst believe all things, that's anything. All things are possible to him that believeth. This tender inquiry of Jesus. As to the duration of this child's condition brought the father 's account of this long-standing plight of his son. This has gone on since he was a child. Apparently, this is not just a, a little a little feller since he was a child. The father's pathetic plea here for help touched the compassionate heart of our Savior, the servant. Mark, remember, sees him as a servant. The reply of Jesus is a very classic statement of the the dependence of faith for blessings. The power of God is always available, but faith in God is essential. All things, he says, are possible to him that believeth. Now, I want us to look at three reasons why the disciples failed and let's check our own lives at the same time. First of all, as as we go on and say, it says in straight way, the Father of the child cried out and said with tears. Can you just see the emotion here? Can you see the heart of the man, of the father here? As he wept and he cried. He had said, if you can do anything, help us. And now with tears, he says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Now, I want us to see three reasons why the disciples failed. First of all, I want to show you that prayer was ignored. Prayer ignored. When the disciples, in verse 28, notice this. It says, and when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could not we cast him out? Why couldn't we cast him out? When the disciples asked Jesus why they had failed to heal the boy, Jesus put his finger right on the spot by saying that it was because they had failed to pray. Because, he says in, in the next verse, nothing, these things cannot be except there be prayer and fasting. The apostle James says that, the same thing. He said, ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. James 4:2. Is this true of us? If it's true of any of us, we have great and mighty things that we would love to see done. In our own lives, in our family lives, and, and those around us and in our nation. But one thing is certain you can you cannot have victory in public unless we have vigilance in private. So the first reason that they failed was they ignored praying. Secondly, I want you to notice the power was impeded. Now, notice this: when he, in verse 19, he said, "O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you?" He's talking to the disciples. How long shall I be with you? I'm not always going to be here physically. And how long will I have to suffer with your not understanding this? So then he says in verse 23 all things are possible to him that believeth. Could we say, apparently, they didn't believe? Something was wrong with their belief, apparently. Power was impeded here. Back in Mark chapter 3, I want you to notice, if you would, go back to Mark chapter 3 for just a moment. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came unto him. And he ordained the twelve, that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. Then in Mark chapter 6 and verse 7, notice in Mark chapter 6 and verse 7, and he called unto him the twelve and began to send them forth by two and two and gave them power over unclean spirits. What has happened here? What's taken place? He sent them out to do that, and now they can't do it. All things are possible, verse 23, to him that believeth. Apparently, something is wrong with their belief system. So they're back in Mark, Jesus gave them, the, the disciples, the power to cast out devils. But because they were disobedient over prayer, the flow of power into their lives was blocked. Sin always does that. Sin spoils our witness. In verse 14, sin ruins our usefulness, verse 18 And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away, and I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Notice that it was the sin of omission. The sin of omission here. In James chapter 4, And in verse 17, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. I wonder if they were just saying, Well, we've been chosen out. We're the special ones. But I remind you, Jesus is not... When all this took place, Jesus wasn't in their physical presence. I submit to you folks, Jesus is right now not in our physical presence. Is there any unconfessed and unforsaken sin that is spoiling our lives? So we see here the prayer that's ignored. We see the power that is impeded. Then notice the priorities That are inverted. In verse 29, fasting need not necessarily be only going without food. Notice he says, and he said unto them, said unto them, This kind, what kind? This is a special occasion, this is a special thing that it takes the power of God to handle. This is not putting a dish of food on a table for somebody. This is not putting the shirt on a man's back. This is not putting shoes on one's feet. This is a special case. This child had to be delivered, and they could not do it. Why? It says, And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing, by nothing, but by prayer and fasting. Now, verse 29, the fasting need not, as I said, necessarily refer to going without food. But in its wider interpretation, it can mean going without other things which are not wrong in and of themselves necessarily, but, but which take up our time And our money, which would be better spent in other ways. Somebody said there's nothing so strange as he who has time to waste that wants to spend it with those who do not have time to waste. The lesson is that a Christian should put first things first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. The lesson is that a Christian must put first things first. He must get his priorities right. I submit to you, these disciples, these nine did not have their priorities right. You check through the causes of failure failure very carefully and determine that with God's help, they will not be these things will not be true in your own life. Paul put it this way in a verse we know very well. These very important words in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Now, he's not talking to the world. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Do you know that you're experiencing the mercies of God right now? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's just reasonable to present yourself to God. For some reason, these could, not, these could not do that. He said, all things are possible to them that believe, but then they that are supposed to believe could not cast out the devil out this boy. He said, and be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let me tell you, let me just say this. Do you know that right now, believe it or not, God already knows who's going to be our new president? So don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. To tell you the truth, I wouldn't mind just going up on Capitol Hill and sticking my tongue out all of them. <laughs> but then notice what the Word of God says in 1 Chronicles 16, 11, Look to the Lord and His strength. Seek His face always. And I believe that's what was happening here that these disciples did not do. So we have in these verses, I believe, we have the possibility, unlimited possibilities. If we believe God, we trust God, and we live for him, and it may come, That we need to pray and fast and pray, prayer and fasting. I believe, folks, that that's one thing that could save America in her situation now is if God's people would pray and fast over the condition of our hearts, over the condition of our nation. And may God help us to realize the unlimited possibilities as we submit ourselves to God. Our Father, we're so thankful for this day you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for the Word of God that we have. And we pray, dear Lord, that you'd help us now to submit ourselves to you. Lord, sometimes we find ourselves powerless. Sometimes we find ourselves, it seems to be empty. But Father, I know that you say that all things are possible to them that believe. Help us, Lord, to serve you. Help us, Lord, to take a lesson from these that did not follow you the way they should. Because, Lord, we realize right now that we are not in your physical presence. Spiritually, we are through the Holy Ghost. But you are not physically with us as you were not with these nine. Well, what are we going to do when you are out of our presence physically? Are we going to act like them? This is what happened when you were out of their presence. When the Lord Jesus was out of their presence physically. And they seemed to have their faith wavering and doubting. Help us not to do that, Lord, but to trust you. Now, all of us that sit here in the auditorium tonight and those are listening by way of the Internet, we certainly have situations and problems and burdens and heartaches that we have to trust you for. You're the only one that can work. But, Lord, maybe you stir our hearts to fast and to pray over those situations. Over that wayward loved one, Over that one that's lost. Over that one that's physically sick. Lord, help us, Lord, to be faithful to you. And realize the unlimited possibilities in that all things are possible to those that believe. Help us to trust you, I pray, in Jesus' name.